Again, I want to say thank you for being here. This is my first Easter with Hillside, so I'm glad to be here for Easter. This is Brian leading us in worship, his first Easter. Not only is it Brian's first Easter, it's like practically his first day on the job. So he's here, he's with us, and so it's good to have him with us. Um, I don't know about you, but um, growing up in different phases of life, Easter has taken on very different meanings at different points of my life. I mean, obviously, when I'm a kid, there's that whole deal of, of Easter eggs and getting candy and getting money and just being, you know, going forward and all of that. I mean, a lot of our kids experienced that last week, right? Anybody here for the helicopter drop? That was pretty crazy. And so my kids are ecstatic, and I'm sort of like a little kid as well, just like, this is so cool. Pretty cool shot there going on. There was was another phase as I started to grow out of the finding the Easter eggs for myself kind of phase, where I realized that Easter is a good time to pick up chicks. Not like like the, the chicken chicks. Easter's a good time to pick up ladies. So I was like third grade, and there's this girl in the sixth grade named Sandy Lightfoot. Sandy Lightfoot was the hottest sixth grader in town, I think maybe in America. And so um, it was like the youth group, I don't even know why youth group were, were hunting for Easter eggs, but it was their trip. And so I had the distinct honor of having a mother on the Easter egg hiding committee. And so I knew where the Easter eggs would be. In fact, I knew where the grand prize Easter egg would be located. So I go with my mom, I help her hide the eggs, we go back to the church, we get everybody into this big old school bus that now is our churches, which means it was dilapidated, and as we're riding, beautiful Sandy Lightfoot, in all of her glory, was just a few seats away. I mean, she had like that big boof of a hair, you know, she looked like a Guns N' Roses groupie, you know what I'm talking about? So she's just a few seats, and I think, this is my chance. I may never have a chance with Sandy Lightfoot, but I know where the grand prize Easter egg is. This is my inn. So I just scoot a little bit closer to where Sandy's sitting. Somehow casually let out, I know where the grand prize Easter egg is. And if Sandy wants to get in on the action, she needs to stick with me. And it worked marvelously until she found the grand prize Easter egg because I led her there. And then she never spoke to me again, probably the rest of my life. It was over. But we have these different seasons where Easter takes on different meanings. It means different things. We, when we had our children, we, our first daughter, Olivia, is born, and it's our very first Easter egg hunt. So she's like a year and a half, and, and I remember the joy. I think we were more excited than she was. She didn't know what was going on, and we're just telling her, pick it up, pick it up. And so she would bend over, and she would have like that diaper plumber crack every time she bent over to get an Easter egg. But we didn't care. We thought it was the most beautiful thing in the world. I've got pictures in the video of zooming in on her every time she bent over. And we were just living in that moment and just thinking, this is as good as it gets. But real, really, I mean, we uh, who are here in this room, we know what Easter is really about. But I wonder if we've really experienced it with our life. Not just we know what it's about in our head. Not just we, we've got some of the facts, we've got some of the figures, but it's like, let's get on to life. But, but have we experienced Easter? Have we experienced what, what God would want us to know and God would want us to sense and, and God would want to do in us in a season like this? 
Or have we just said, I know what it's about. And then we move on. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 24. If you have a phone or something like that and you can get a signal, Luke chapter 24, Google it. Good luck. And we're at that part of the story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has already been doing his life and his ministry. He's born into this world to die. But he's born in this manger. He's born in these very obscure circumstances. And then then there's 30-some years where we barely know anything at all about what happens in his life. But then all of a sudden he begins to teach and he begins to perform miracles. And everywhere he goes... Crowds are following him. Crowds are amazed at his teaching because his teaching is unlike anything they've ever heard. They're amazed at the miracles that he performs because no one has ever done anything like this. And then somewhat suddenly, Jesus is betrayed. And Jesus is arrested. And Jesus stands trial and he is unjustly convicted and condemned to die on a cross. And Luke tells the story about how Jesus willingly endured the embarrassment, endured the humiliation, the the pain of those nails being driven in his hand. He willingly endured a, a cross being lifted up for all the world to see. And he died on that cross. And his disciples depart, mourning the loss of the one that they thought was Messiah. So in Luke chapter 24, that's where they're at. They have been grieving. They don't understand why the plan ended the way that it did. They think all hope is gone. So Luke 24, verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. They have no reason to believe, although Jesus had told them time and time again that Jesus would be alive, they are going to prepare his body for for burial. They are going to embalm him as best they can in that day. They think all hope is gone. And so they're headed to the tomb to take care of business. Verse 2 tells us when they get there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, they're pondering. It means they're perplexed. They're like, we don't understand what's going on. So even in this moment, they don't remember Jesus' words that I'm going to rise again on the third day. Even in this moment, they're not connecting the dots. They're pondering about this. Suddenly, two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside of them. So in the middle of their wondering what's going on here, they're they're trying to figure this out and they're still not getting it. So angels appear on the scene. And they still don't get it. Verse 5, In their fright the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the one who told you he would be alive In a cemetery. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Verse 6. He is not here. And then they proclaim. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? They're like, 
He's not here. He has risen. He told you he was going to do this. He told you this plan for year after year, month after month. Jesus told you this is how it would go down. For some reason, they just didn't get it. He says, he's he's not here. Don't you remember what he told you? Verse 7, as Jesus had told them, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then something happened. Then they remembered his words. As if a light bulb went off. As if this story, this mystery finally made sense in that moment. Then they remembered his words. So at the end of the day, Easter is not about eggs Helicopters, picking up ladies. At the end of the day, Easter is about something very, very simple. This angel says it succinctly. It's about three things. Three things that Jesus told his people, told us over and over again. Jesus was, number one, delivered into the hands of sinners. He was given over. Now, he he went willingly. I mean, this was God's plan. They didn't take him. He went willingly. He surrendered. God gave him over. That's why the Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God loved the world so much he sent his one and only son. This was the plan for Jesus to be born so that he could be delivered. It's, It's this idea. It's the idea of being ransomed. Jesus was delivered over as a ransom, as a payment Maybe you'd say, as a a payment for what? Jesus was was delivered as a ransom for sin. Because sin comes with a price, and God tells us that that there must be a payment of sin. In the Old Testament, you see time after time that the way that they thought they paid and they tried to pay was by sacrificing animals because there was scripture that said that blood sacrifice has to be offered to pay for sins, but they had to do that over and over and over and over and over again. But then Jesus came. And Jesus was delivered over into the hands of sinners. And once and for all, finally and for all of eternity, the ransom was paid. The price was fulfilled. And that's why Jesus could say, it is finished. So he's delivered over. Secondly, as we're told, as the angel reminds us, he was crucified. That Christ has died Christ has died and he was buried in a tomb and in that there's the significance of the payment has been made and that is final and it's done and it's complete. Christ was crucified. But that's not the end of the story. He was crucified and he died so that death could then be this doorway for eternity for all of us with God. To follow him. And he conquered death, he conquered the grave, he conquered hell when he was crucified. And thirdly, the angel says he was raised again on the third day. Just like Jesus said he would be, he was raised again on the third day. Victoriously. 
There's this version of the Bible called the Message. And the Message is a translation of the Bible that's not a word-for-word translation. It tries to capture the idea. It tries to capture the thoughts behind the authors. And so I love the way that the Message translation talks about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. So we don't have it on the screen, but just listen to this, how the author translated it. 1 Corinthians 15, it's like verses 50 through 57. I need to emphasize, friends, that our natural earthly lives don't in themselves lead us to the very nature into the kingdom of God. Their very nature is to die. So how could they naturally end up in the life kingdom? But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet. And in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening. And law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our Master, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. So Monday morning, while I stood beside a grave of a 12-year-old boy and his parents were waiting to lower his body into the ground, there was us remembering and reading, this is not the end. This is not final. There is hope in the midst of even the deepest and darkest hour because the resurrection of Jesus says death has been defeated. And we can have victory in life and and hope for the future even when in the midst of our life it seems like everything is falling apart. And so what we're told here in this message translation, in a single victorious stroke of life, Sin and guilt and death are gone. Because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave, conquering those things. And here's the thing. If, it, if Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, all the authorities at that time would have had to do to debunk this myth, if it were that, was come up with a body and say, here's Jesus. He, he didn't rise from the grave. He's right here. Now, some people came up with different theories of how this wasn't possible. And and they said, well, his disciples stole the body away. That's why you never found a body. Well, here we just read the story of the disciples coming to the tomb with spices to bury the body, right? They didn't believe that Jesus was going to be alive. They didn't steal the body away. They were going to prepare the body for burial. You've got to remember what's going on. When, when Jesus' body is put in a tomb, we're told that a massive stone, that, that the disciples weren't strong enough to roll that stone away, was rolled into place. We're told that this massive stone was sealed by the government. Don't you touch this for any reason. We're told that they put 
soldiers to guard the stone to make sure nobody would steal the body away. There were all of these things done to prohibit anyone messing with the body, anyone taking the body. There's, Jesus was dead and he stayed there, but something supernatural had to happen. There's, there's this other theory that says just, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. Um, the women went to the wrong tomb. It's that old theory that says women are bad with directions. That's not me saying that. But they said they, they went, the GPS took them to the wrong location, the wrong tomb. But we know that's not true. If Jesus didn't really rise from the grave, they could have just brought his body forth and say, it's a hoax, don't believe it, don't go for it. But the truth is, history tells us it's never been refuted. He really did rise from the grave. And as we read the rest of the story, we discover that the disciples begin to go out and with, with sort of an ever-building joy, the, the more fully they realize it, it's like they're saying, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Not in the Frankenstein kind of way, but in the celebration that everything has changed, the fulfillment of everything has come true. He is alive, like he said he would be. So that's, that's what happened. Here's what we need to talk about. What does it mean? If all of that is really true, then, then what does it mean for me? I mean, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for our lives? If all of that is true, and in this Easter season, if it's true, what does it really matter? I love the way that the angel asked this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And I believe there's some of us here who are looking for Life, looking for hope, looking for those things that will bring us meaning and fulfillment. But we're looking in places that only lead us to death. We're looking in the wrong places. We're trying to find some of the things that Jesus offers and that Jesus brings and Jesus promises, but we're looking in the wrong places. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Here's the truth. The message of Easter is simultaneously bad news and good news. It's simultaneously worse than you thought, while also being greater than we could ever imagine. That's the message of Easter. Simultaneously worse than you thought, while being greater than we could ever imagine. Here's what I mean. So when I was a little boy growing up in North Carolina, we, in our little church, we built a brand new church building. And I don't know exactly if anyone ever told me this message. Here's the message that I received. I, I always got this message that God wanted me to be, more than anything else, a good little boy. As if God was just all about morality and behavior and nothing else. So I always tried to just be good. I always tried to do the right thing. And there's this one vivid memory that I have, probably 12, 13 or so years of age. We had just built a brand new building. And I remember one of the church leaders coming in as the youth group or whatever I was in at that time. We were in this area and they started talking about the kids those rowdy kids, those neighborhood kids were showing up at our church and they said, we don't want those kids to mess up our building. We don't want those kids messing up our church. 
This was a formative experience for me because in that moment, as this leader, this spiritual man in our midst said, we don't want those little children messing up our church. I stood up and I said, aren't those little children who the church is here for? And what do you mean our church? Isn't this God's church, not yours? And what do you mean church? This is just a building. That's just a wall. Jesus didn't come for that wall, did he? He came for little rowdy kids, right? I'm just kidding. I didn't say any of that. (laughs) I wish I would have thought to say that in that moment. I wish I would have thought. You know how that goes? Hindsight. That would have been good. But that's true. But I still had this, and I still carried this weight with me as if, as if God cared about my behavior more than anything else, that he was the moral police, and being spiritual was being a, a moral police person, say, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, that it was all about behavior. But can I just tell you, Jesus didn't come just to make bad people good. See, the problem is it's worse than we thought. He didn't just come to make bad people good. He didn't come for a wall and to keep us clean and pure on the outside, but inside filthy. He didn't come just to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And that may not be proper English, but it's pretty good theology. Jesus didn't come for just clean up the outside, clean up the act, say you've got this wrong, you've got this wrong, you need to straighten up, you need to not wear a hat in church, you need to not chew gum. That's the kind of stuff that I got when I was young. Behavior, behavior, behavior. Jesus didn't come just to make bad people good. The truth is Jesus came to make dead people alive. So it's worse than we thought. We're not just bad. Scripture says apart from Christ, we're dead. We're dead in our sins. We're unable to do anything that is eternally good and beneficial. We're dead in our sins. Not just bad. I mean, dead's a whole new level of bad, right? We're dead in our sins. But the news is not just worse than we thought. It's also greater than we ever imagined. Jesus came to bring dead To life, Jesus came to bring those in darkness into the light. Jesus came to bring those who are oppressed and set them free. Jesus came to give those who are in despair hope. And that's what it means to be alive. And that's what it means for the resurrection to take root in our life and for us to understand what's going on. And and that's why when the angels would come and say, He is not here, He is risen. The one that you're looking for hope for is not in some dried up empty tomb. He's risen in new life and he wants to give you and me new life. See, this was a theme very often that Jesus talks about. He he talks about this idea that I am the living bread that came down from heaven and whoever eats this bread will live forever. Now that's a little strange, I know. Last night we were taking communion on the Good Friday walk here at the church and it was my seven-year-old's first time ever being around communion. So while Jesus was acting out the skid and picking the bread, all my son was doing was going, hmm, that looks good. And I was like, stop it, stop it. It's not like a buffet. And he was disappointed because they said, well, I want you to take this bread and go back to your table and share it. And he grabbed one of those little tiny crackers and he looked at the lady and he's like, I'm supposed to share this? But Jesus says, I'm the living bread, and those who, who 
Come to me. Those who feed on me will live forever. Jesus said the ones who feed on me will live because of me. He says also, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from our hearts. Jesus says in John 10.10 that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus has come to give us life. He's come to give us abundant life, full life. He's come to make us alive. The good news of the resurrection is it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how dead you feel like you are, how far gone you are. Jesus has come to give us life. And if we look to other things and say, that's life for me. And if we're looking to those things that are actually dead, we never never will experience what Christ has for us. If we look at that job and we say, this job is life, I made it, I've arrived, finally, success and satisfaction and meaning. Well, what happens if you lose that job? Or what happens, and some of us have done this, we got there, we arrived. And then we realized that arriving wasn't all that it promised. What about this? Some of us, we look to our children to be our life. I mean, we say things like, my life revolves around my kids. Really? Is that good? Because what happens if our kids don't live as long as we live? Does that mean our life is over? Or what happens, not quite so severe, what happens when our kids go away and we're empty nesters? Does that mean life's over? Jesus says, I've come to bring you life. Because here's where the problem is. Many passages tell us this kind of thing, but Romans 6.23 is one example. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the wages that I was talking about earlier. Jesus paid them. And as we sing together, Jesus paid it all. We, we sing a hymn that's been around for the church some 150 years. And generation after generation has declared that truth that Jesus paid it all. The wages of sin that, that all of us owed, Jesus paid it. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God that he wants to give to us is eternal life. And, and that doesn't just mean that after we die, something's secure. But it does mean that. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But, but it means also that there's a new life as we live our life. There's a new hope and a new purpose. And, and we're made alive now and for eternity. And what Christ wants to do in us. And so real quickly, what what does it look like if our life becomes that resurrected kind of life? It means, first of all, we have hope. If the resurrection of Jesus tells us anything, it's that we have hope. That even when we grieve, 
Scripture tells us we don't grieve like those who have no hope. We don't grieve in despair. We grieve and through our sadness and through our mourning, there's still a foundation of hope. Because we know death is not the end of the story. We know that if we're depressed and we don't have Jesus, you're not just depressed, you're dead spiritually. But Christ comes to us in those moments and says, Come to me, all you who are depressed, and I will give you help. And I'll walk with you through that. The resurrection of Jesus coming alive in our lives means that we don't have to be in despair. We can have hope. He will meet us where we are. It means that we can live in love. If we're apathetic or if we're indifferent, the resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes to make us alive to to say we don't have to be stuck there. We don't have to be trapped there. Life can have meaning. Life can have a future that we look for, that we look towards, that we expect. It means that we can understand that it doesn't matter what I've done in my past. God still loves me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing right now in my present God still loves me and we can live in that love. And it's not that God says, if you'll just act right, if you'll just clean up your life, then I'll accept you. God's saying in Jesus, I love you right now as much as I could ever love you. Will you trust me? Will you live in that love? You don't have to prove anything to anyone. I love you just like you are. And the cross of Jesus shows us that. And the empty tomb shows us that we can experience that ourselves, live in that victory as well. But you could be here today and you could say, Aaron, you don't even know me. And spiritually, I'm dead. Or pretty close to it. And you would say, I'm too far gone. Really? Really? Isn't that what they said about Jesus when he was buried in a tomb? It's too late. It's all over. There's no hope. But you would say, spiritually, I'm so messed up. I'm so far from God. I'm too far gone. And I would say, guess what? It's not too late. You're not too far gone. You are the best candidate in this place because maybe, just maybe, you finally realized you're dead and now Christ can make you alive. Maybe you would say, but Aaron, you, you don't even know about my marriage. It's, it's dead. It's too late for us. It's too late. We're too far gone. I don't know. What if? What if the fact of that realization would finally be the place where you say, it's too late, it's too far gone, I can't do anything, I can't fix it, it's over. And that becomes the place where Jesus says, It's my time now. I specialize in bringing dead things back to life. So here's the thing. What's what's the opposite? Like Like the far, far, far opposite of being alive. Is it just being dead? Or I would argue it's this. It's being dead and not knowing it. 
That's the true opposite. The true opposite is not just being dead. The opposite of being alive is being dead and not knowing it. And what if today, what if in light of the resurrection of Jesus, we would want to acknowledge, we would want to see and remember that the resurrection of Jesus says, even when I am dead, he can make me alive. Even when things in life feel too far gone, feel past being redeemed, he can step in, he can restore, he can redeem. And what if for the first time in our life we would realize where we're at right now in life, we are so deeply loved by God and the cross that Jesus died on was out of God's great love for us. And the tomb that Jesus was raised from is showing that there's nothing in our lives that can hold us back from God's delivering power. And we would just simply in faith say, God, bring me to life. Let me experience the life that you have for me. Do in me, God, what only you can do. And out of that, we'll, we'll see in these next coming weeks as we keep talking next week that we can be courageous. We can live with faith and with passion knowing that this God is calling us into his purposes. But before we talk about that, we've got to back up and say, are we truly alive? And walking in the life that Christ has for us, walking in obedience to the life Christ calls us to, and if not, that today could be the day where we acknowledge we are dead and in desperate need of help. And we call to Jesus, make us alive. Father, we pray right now for your strength and for the work of your Spirit to lead us, to speak to us, to let us sense where you're calling us. And God, so there's some here today who would say, I, I understand and I acknowledge I am in that place of spiritually I'm dead. And there's nothing I can do to fix it. And there's nothing that I can do to make it any better. Maybe, just maybe, you would call out to Jesus, help me. Bring me back to life again. Maybe today you would say, there's an area of my life that I've been looking to bring me life, but at the end of the day, I, I know, I know I'm looking in the wrong place. I know I'm looking in a place that will not lead me to life. I, I've been allowing something to be a part of my life that I know I shouldn't. And today I turn from that and I turn to you, Christ, for life, for hope, for love. So God, as we today remember your resurrection, as we celebrate who you are and what you have done, we pray, Holy Spirit of God, lead us into the life that you have created for us. Lead us to the cross. Lead us to an empty tomb where we see the power of God, the resurrection power that you have for us. And God, do in our lives what only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name.